a science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment because science was on my side. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we present true personal stories about science. I am your host, Liz Neely, and this week we're presenting stories about help from family. Now, this might sound familiar because this is, in fact, the second in our two-part series. So last week, we were focused on complicated family relationships. And so this week, uh, yeah, we're doing the same thing because it's family, and families are nothing if not complicated, even when you're trying to do something that should be as easy as and good as just helping. So our first story is from Khadija Owes. It was recorded in March 2020 at the Royal Room in Seattle, Washington. Uh, that was in the before times. And the theme that night was 10 years of stories. It was the first of what was supposed to be many anniversary celebrations for the Story Collider. Somalis are really blunt when it comes to nicknames. Um, We tend to give them based on physical traits in order to differentiate individuals based on what they look like, some personality traits. One, for example, that I get very frequently is Khadija Smallnose because I have a small nose. My parents and their friends have given me several um, nicknames over the years. What a toy I got because my mom uh, considered me a wanderer when I was hanging out with my friends too frequently, or a bad though my mom would give me, which was a worshiper as a backhanded compliment um, when I was not worshiping enough in her standards. But my favorite of all of them was when my dad called me the scientist. I was very curious about bodies growing up, and I was incredibly curious when it came to my own. This manifested itself in sticking a button in my nose as a kid um, when I wanted to hide it from my sister, or ripping up a piece of newspaper and tucking it into my ear because I thought it was a pocket. (laughs) Lathering my entire... (laughs) Lathering my entire body with Vaseline, including my hair, and using those tiny elastic bands at the end of your hair braid as bracelets and falling asleep, which almost cost me my hand. We were very frequent patrons of the Toronto General Hospital. (laughs) Learning more about my body made me more curious, and learning what I should and shouldn't do with my body made me more curious. So you can imagine how excited I was when at seven years old, my mom called us downstairs and wanted to talk to us about puberty. Me and my older sister sat down with her in the dining room that we never used. And she started with, girls, when a girl becomes a woman. And I'm like, what? She begins to bleed from down there. Bleed down where? She pulls out a very tiny diaper or an incredibly large bandage and starts walking us through how you need to wrap up down there when you get your period. 
She goes off on tangents about when she got her first period in Somalia and how you had these batis that we wear to sleep usually, these like very casual dresses that they would rip up the pieces of cloth off of and then wrap around their uh, underwear to use as a pad. And I'm thinking, I'd prefer the tiny diaper. She goes on and on about tangents and tells us about her, her life and she ends up on, when you get your period and you become a woman, don't let anyone touch down there because you'll get pregnant. And if you get pregnant, you're not allowed to do that until you get married. And that's as much of a sex talk as we get growing up. I walk through the house that day with my chest puffed. One day, I'm gonna become a woman uh, my sister gets her period maybe a month later, so in hindsight, my mom knew something was up. <laughs> and then I get it at around 12. I'm a little bit more conscious of a person at that point, um, and I look over to my younger brother and think, who's gonna have this conversation with him? My dad is not into talking about anything other than conspiracy theories and, and God and the afterlife. And my mom really doesn't want to step on his toes when it comes to that regard and gender bend and have that conversation with her son. So I'm thinking, you know, in my family and in my community, these uncomfortable conversations don't necessarily happen unless someone decides to step up. So no one's going to have this dining room conversation with my younger brother unless... So I run downstairs into the living room, which is houses our dial-up uh, computer at the time. And it's conveniently facing the kitchen where my mom's usually hanging out and on the phone. And as you guys recall, the dial-up phone internet situation back in the day. Um, so I look back and I'm trying to make sure that my mom's not there looking at what I'm looking up on the internet. <laughs> and I type in male puberty. So at this point, I'm like 11 or 12. I'm not very conscious of the female anatomy. And so male anatomy is just completely outside of my realm of understanding. So I'm like reading these websites like, what is a scrotum? <laughs> <laughs> and I finally stumble upon a article called uh, The Signs and Processes of Male Puberty. And I'm thinking, jackpot. <laughs> So I write down all of the things in my little girl diary and I start taking observation notes about my younger brother. <laughs> so I'm walking through the house like, a tuft of armpit hair, check. Some acne, check. Growth spurts, check. And then finally one day his voice cracks and I'm like, it's go time. <laughs> So I print out um, some sheets about the process of male puberty. I tuck them underneath my shirt so that my mom doesn't see that I'm having this conversation with my brother because she doesn't even want me to talk about my period in front of him, let alone his own puberty. So I run up to my room, I lay out the things for him, and then I channel my inner Hoya, or mom in Somali, and I'm like, Idris, come into my room. He follows me into my room. <laughs> And we talk about male puberty. And I start, it did this when a boy becomes a man. 
and he looks incredibly uncomfortable, <laughs> but curious. And I see like my seven-year-old self in him and the curiosity in my eye that I had when my mom was having that conversation with me. And we start going through as much of male puberty as my preteen mind can comprehend. And at the end of that conversation, I'm like, Idiris, when a boy becomes a man, don't let anyone touch down there because you could get pregnant. <laughs> and mom says you're not allowed to do that until marriage. So we fast forward. We fast forward and I'm in my undergrad and I'm going through the very difficult process of letting go of a very large part of my life and growing up, which was Islam. And uh, it was something that I had grown up with. All my family was Muslim. All I thought I was Muslim. My friends were Muslim. Um, and as I begin to kind of let go of that uh, identity, I am kind of awestrucken by the fact that I lost a really huge community. I was often getting messages from my friends' parents and extended family members who I was not very comfortable with telling me, put it back on, <laughs> or um, getting messages from young women who also wanted to take it off and kind of shed themselves of that religious uh, identity and not being able to come to them with any advice because I'm young and figuring it out as well. Um, so I did what most millennials with healthcare access do, and I went to therapy. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I start going to therapy, and I go in once a week with this uh, amazing black woman, Monica, and we go through uh, an hour of me crying and then her helping me get closer and closer to who I am outside of this religious identity that I'd grown up with. Um, and then one day, as I'm walking out of the health center, I stumble upon a poster on the wall that's calling for peer educators. Um, and one of them was sex and reproductive education. And as you know, my sex education at that point was, don't have sex, you're gonna get pregnant and die. <laughs> so I sign up and I interview and I meet this amazing woman, Jenna, who uh, talks to me about like the different sexualities there are and how this community or peer education program brings about like a family like uh, existence or nature. And I had realized that I was missing that after kind of letting go of my religious identity. Um, so I sign up and share or sh sexual health and reproductive education kind of becomes my home. Um, I remember at some point I was walking down the mall of my undergrad and was carrying a basket full of condoms and a very large purple dildo <laughs> so that I could go and provide a uh, workshop for some group. And I ran into... <laughs> my Muslim classmate uh, who I did not know, or I haven't, hadn't seen for a really long time, and she's picking up these condoms off the floor with me, and I'm like, this is why I'm carrying these condoms. I just don't carry all these condoms regularly. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, you know, 
the Muslim Student Association kind of needs that kind of education. It's taboo, but like it's an important thing for individuals to kind of learn. Um, so I kind of took the role at that point of being like an not a licensed sex educator for the Muslim community at that time, which was amazing and brought me closer to a community that I thought I kind of like shed myself off of. Um, so yeah. <laughs> um, thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah. So when you need an 11 year old boy who needs to be walking through the processes of puberty or when there's a 22 year old woman who wants to have a conversation about where she should get her SDI testing, um, I'll be there, you know, printouts in hand, not tucked in shirt anymore <laughs> and possibly a purple dildo. Thank you. That was Khadija Owais. Khadija is a health administration graduate student at the University of Washington. She calls herself indecisive by nature and says she has had the pleasure of bouncing around in several healthcare settings before landing on what she wants to do, which is supporting the business needs of healthcare organizations with a desire to push forth strategic needs through an equitable lens. We need that. Khadija hails from the DMV metro area and is a cancer, she says, through and through. She loves spending time with her makeshift Seattle family and going on internet research spirals inspired by late night anxieties. Thank you, Khadija. Get some sleep. Don't doom scroll too much. Or if you do, I hope it's productive. Before we move on to the next story, I wanted to be sure to mention that we have another live show for you to join. It's happening next Thursday, July 23rd. And yes, Thursday, it's a new night for us and a slightly new twist on our online format. It will feature three stories from our Atlanta, Georgia homestage. And they, the storytellers will be sharing stories on the theme Balancing Act. If you haven't been to one of our online shows before, I promise you, you are going to have a wonderful time. It's a great way to unwind after a long week. You're in for fun polls and good chat. We'll invite you to share your own 10-word story on the theme of Balancing Act. And lately, we've been sticking around after the show is over to have Q&A with the tellers. It's great. We're suggesting a $10 donation for your ticket, but it's pay what you will. And if nothing else, I promise you will enjoy yourself. So come join us on Thursday for a show at 7 p.m. Eastern. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Our next story today is from Leisha Maliakol. It was recorded in July 2019 at the Cards Against Humanity Theater in Chicago, Illinois. The theme of that night was Not All is Lost.
January of 27 or January of this past year, I was laying in my bed and I was staring at the ceiling and I was thinking to myself, how am I going to get my shit together in life? I was thinking about my financial goals and I was thinking about how I was going to balance that with wanting to be a productive grad student and also take care of myself and my mental and physical health. I was thinking about how was I supposed to carve out time to spend time with family and friends at home amid all of my goals. And I wasn't just thinking about the next couple of years. I was thinking about the future and I was thinking about how one day I want to be a kick-ass faculty at an R1 institution. And how am I going to balance that with also wanting to be a kick-ass mom like my parents were for me growing up when I was a kid. Growing up, Calling my dad a helicopter parent would have been the understatement of the year. He did everything for us. I remember when we were kids, we would get home from high school and he would clear the dining room table and he would set it up as this little study table because education was a huge priority in our family. And in between studying, he would make time and gather us all for these little exercise drills where we would go up and use his weights upstairs. and. Uh, in between the exercise and after we finished that, we would go home or we would go back and we would have dinner together as a family and he would make time at the end of dinner for all of us to say the rosary together because spending time with family and praying together was a huge priority growing up. And somehow he managed to magically balance all of these things every night. And it didn't change when I got to college. I did my undergrad maybe 20 minutes away from home and... Uh, during my undergrad, I actually started this research that I continued into grad school that was about runners and spectators and being able to support spectators in cheering for runners at races. So some spectators, when they go to these races like half marathons, they have different goals that they actually care about. They're not just there to cheer for their own runner. They're actually interested in supporting other people in the community. But it can be really difficult to make decisions about when do I cheer for who when a lot of the technology is geared to helping you cheer for your runner. And so a lot of my research was about building this app and taking it out to actual races and testing it and seeing if we could help spectators with these two goals. And my dad knew this was a huge priority for me in undergrad and grad school, and he did whatever he could to protect that time so that I could focus on my research and took care of everything else for me. I remember in undergrad, he would show up at the back door of my apartment with a little takeout container of the curry that he made that morning and another little takeout container of a pomegranate that he peeled just hours before to drop it off so I wouldn't have to cook. And I remember if he couldn't be there physically, he would call me on the phone and he would ask, is there anything that I could do to help you out? And in particular, I remember this one call where he was just asking me if I could come home for the weekend and spend time with the family. And I remember telling him, Daddy, I really don't have time this weekend. I have this huge race. I've been preparing for it for like three, four weeks now. It's a big deal, and I, I don't know if I can make the time. And very sneakily, he would ask all of these little questions, trying to figure out, where was this race? What time is it at? When do you have to get there? And I told him, well, you know, the race starts at 7. I'm probably going to have to get there like an hour and a half before because I've got to recruit users. And, I mean, if I think about the travel time, I'm probably going to have to get up at like 4, 4.30, leave. I'll just take a lift because that's going to be reimbursed by the lab because it's part of the transportation. So... I mean, that's my plan so far. And he paused and he said with such certainty, okay, Alicia, I'm going to be there at 4.30 tomorrow morning to pick you up, be ready outside. 
And I just thought, what? Like, I literally just had a conversation with you, talking to you about how I have everything set up. You don't need to go out of your way to make these ridiculous sacrifices to protect me because I've got this. And I tried to fight with him over the phone and let him know he didn't have to do this, but this was non-negotiable. He was going to be there at 4.30 the next morning. And sure enough, I went downstairs that morning and he was there waiting outside in his Jeep. And I got into the car and I sat next to him and I was getting ready for this race. So I was sitting there and I had these two phones in my hand. And I was trying to set up one as a spectator and one as a runner so that I could test to see if everything was working that morning, if the notifications were going through. And in between, as we're driving to the race, he's interjecting and asking me these questions because that's the time we have to catch up that weekend. And he's asking me, well, Alicia, how are you doing? Is everything okay? Are you managing the stress? How's this project going? Do you feel good about the race? And I'm just thinking, no, I absolutely do not. <laughs> I, I was up till 2 a.m. debugging to make sure that I had a deployable app that I could take to this race. No, I am not okay. But of course, I don't tell him any of this. I tell him, well, yeah, things are fine. I mean, everything, I, I, things are hard, whatever, it's okay. And I'm just mumbling, trying to set these apps up. And in between, he asked me, well, Alicia, do you want to pray the rosary on the way there? Maybe that'll help you relax. And I'm just thinking, hell no. <laughs> that is the last thing that I want to spend my time doing. If I don't get these apps working, if something's wrong, I need to fix it before this race. But of course, I don't tell him that either. I turn to him and I say, well, you know, maybe not right now. I have to set up these apps. Maybe we could pray on the way home. And so we approach the race and we're getting to Grant Park and we get to the parking lot and we see that the lot is full and I panic and I look at my phone and I see 60 minutes left to start recruiting participants. And I turn to him and I say, Daddy, I've got to go. I'm just going to hop out right here. I'll walk. I'll meet you somewhere. Okay, don't worry about it. And I grab the door handle and I'm about to crack open the door when he stops me and he says, Leisha, you just need to relax. Okay, we'll get there when we get there everything's going to be fine. And I'm just thinking, there's no way in hell everything's going to be fine. What are you talking about? Um, and I, of course, don't say that to him either. I'm just sitting out, sitting in the passenger seat, staring outside the passenger window, fuming, and waiting till we get to the next parking garage. Another 10 minutes pass, and we get there, and we park the car and I'm looking at the clock and now we're a 10 minute walk away from the start area of this race and I'm thinking I have 40, maybe 30 minutes left to recruit participants. I'm screwed. And I just beeline through the crowds trying to get to that start area. And I notice when I look behind me that my dad's falling behind and he's trying his best to keep up, but he has bad knees and he can't. And I go back and I rush to him and I say, daddy, I've got to go. I will meet you at the end of the race at that Starbucks, okay? And I go do my thing, and I go test the app, and I watch it at the race and see everything happening. And he goes and he waits at that Starbucks on Michigan Avenue that he always waited at whenever he would take me to a race. And he waited from maybe 5 a.m. to 10 a.m. just sitting there, drinking coffee and staring out the window, people watching. And I would go do my thing, and I'd come back at the end of the race, and I'd sit down. He's already waited till 10, and I crack open my laptop, 
And I start to pull up my database, and I'm looking at all the data to see what happened at the race. Did people cheer? What happened? Did everything go okay? And he's sitting there waiting on his third cup of coffee, maybe, people watching. And by the time I'm done, another hour passes, and I close my laptop, and and um, I tell him, we can go now. And he wasn't complaining the entire time. He was just there. And we get up, and we walk back to the Jeep, back to that parking garage. And I get in the car, and I can tell you on the car ride home we did not pray the rosary, because I passed out in the passenger seat while he drove us home, even though he probably got less sleep than I did that night. And I remember the Friday morning after that race, I was walking to lab, and I got a call from home. And I picked up as I'm walking, and I hear my sister's voice on the other line. And her voice sounds broken in a way that I've never heard her voice before. And I'm sitting there trying to process what she's saying. And I feel my breath quicken in a way that I've never felt. And I do that thing that you see in the movies where you try and put your head between your knees to relax. And that didn't help either. I couldn't focus on my breath in that moment. And I felt my entire body collapse as I was listening to what my sister was telling me. And I grabbed the nearest thing that I could to support my weight, a light pole, and I just fell into the grass. And I put my head on my knees. That morning I had found out that my dad passed away in his sleep. I took about a month off from research, and I tried to spend that time just wrapping our heads around the financial and legal mess that was at home now, and we barely had enough time to recover as a family emotionally. And I remember coming back to lab and just trying to make some sort of progress and go through the motions. I would crack open my laptop at 9 a.m., and I would load up all my data analysis documents on my monitors, and then my phone would light up. And then the corner of my laptop would start to explode with notifications. Shit was going down at home. I got a text saying, what's going on with the Sprint bill? Did anyone pay it? Because now my texts and my calls aren't working. My sister would message me and say, hey, did anybody check to see if mommy's paycheck came through? Because we're not going to be able to make rent if that's not in the bank account. Is anyone free to come home this weekend to spend time with her because she has to pack up the house? She has to sign uh, her. She has to sign her will and prepare her will. She has to move. And I just felt so overwhelmed in those moments. And I remember sitting at my desk and feeling the tears well up in my eyes and I didn't know how to explain myself to my peers next to me and I got up and I rushed down the hall hoping no one would see me and I found the nearest stairwell and I waited till the door closed behind me and I would sit on the radiator and I would take a sharp breath and just weep silently hoping that no one would find me. And it wasn't just the sadness, I was experiencing anger. I was so pissed at my dad. 
I was pissed at him for dying when he did, for leaving us with all of this shit to deal with without his help. I was pissed at him for tearing me from my research and the things that I felt like I needed to focus on at that time in my life so that I could take care of all of this stuff at home. And at the same time, I realized my dad had been doing all of this for us. He had been holding my family together and helping us balance all the goals that we wanted in our lives. Maybe in a way similar to how my app was trying to help spectators do what they wanted, he was there taking care of us. And it was like this for a year and a half, day after day, until this past January when I was laying in bed and I realized this is not sustainable. I need to find a way to not feel pulled between everything that I need to do and ask myself, what do I actually want? And how am I gonna give myself and commit myself in the ways that I want towards the goals that I care about? And I'm standing here seven months later after that January, yesterday marked two years after my dad passed. And I could say that things are a little bit better I'm entering my fourth year of my PhD, and I kept testing that app. I took it to a race, and I saw the glorious outcome that spectators were able to cheer for both their runners and other runners. And I turned that into my first first author paper submission, which was a huge milestone for me, not only in my PhD, but just personally, because I felt like I wasn't making any movement over the past two years. And it wasn't just my research. I was able to do that because I was balancing my research with taking care of myself. I was protecting my Mondays and Wednesdays so that I could cook at home and eat in a way that I wasn't ordering takeout every night. I protected my Tuesday and Thursday nights where I would go to my yoga studio and try and do something about my lower back pain and also learn to take care of my mental and physical health a little bit more. And I made time every couple of weekends to go home and spend time with my family, with my mom, my sisters, my new nephew. And I want to make it clear that this didn't happen overnight. I didn't just wake up and everything was okay. It wasn't magic. It took a lot of really deep focusing and reflecting on what do I actually want for myself? And how am I going to honor everything that I want and value in the ways that I choose to act and spend my time? And to be totally fair, things are not perfect today. Shit still hits the fan. You should have seen me try and plan my July 4th weekend this past <laughs> couple weeks ago when I was trying to figure out how am I going to get this research done but also spend time with my family and also spend time with my boyfriend's friends and just like stuff is still messy. But here's the thing. Over these past seven months, I've been really trying to practice. I've been trying to honor myself and all that I value. And that takes focus and dedication and practice. And things might not be perfect today, but that gives me hope. Thank you. <laughs> That was Leisha Maliakol. Leisha is a PhD student in the Technology and Social Behavior Program at Northwestern University. 
Inspired by the family and communities that raised her, she says that she now explores systems to improve the ways in which we reflect, practice, learn, grow, and support one another in our communities. And don't we need to be doing that right now? We are so grateful to Alicia and to Khadija for telling their stories for us. The Story Collider is also so grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is led by me, Executive Director Liz Neely, as well as by our Artistic Director, Aaron Barker. And we couldn't do it all without our Deputy Director, Nissa Greenberg, our Operations Manager, Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. For example, the stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Malia Bagurigan, Emi Okikawa, Lily B., and Rehana Maktufi. The podcast is produced by our senior podcast editor, Jun Chen, with help from Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to The Royal Room and the Cards Against Humanity Theater for hosting these shows for us. And to all of you, to everyone who's ever tried to help, to everyone who has a complicated family situation, keep, keep trying <laughs> and stay safe. Thanks for listening. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.